I didn't do this because of the sport of running, which, um, don't get me wrong, developed a love for it, a passion for it. It's changed my life. It's introduced me to some of my favorite people and opened the world to me. But running wasn't what it started from. It was a sense of community, and that's what I was passionate about, was community through the art gallery, through the cafe. Running was the vehicle for something else. That was a clip from today's guest, Mike Krupika. Mike is the co-founder of the Parkdale Roadrunners. What started as a bet in a coffee shop 13 years ago has evolved into a run crew with over 500 members all over the world. Man, there is nothing I like more than these stories of people who are like, oh yeah, I just did this thing. And it wasn't some big architected thing. It was someone who was just like, oh, we had this idea and we just started for fun and it built into this thing. And that thing has now helped change lives. This conversation with Mike is such a great example of someone who has become a leader unintentionally just by merit of believing in things and seeking community and wanting to create great experiences for themselves and for others has found themselves in this position where they're someone who helps create things that have so much meaning and empowerment for other people. Beyond that, Mike is just a really wonderful guy. And this conversation was so inspiring to me and really insightful about the power of people just coming together and doing something because it matters to them. But before we get to that, please rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. My name is Aram Arslanian, and this is One Step Beyond. Everyone, welcome back to the show. Mike, welcome. Thank you for having me. You bet. So, for the uninitiated, for the people who don't know, who are you and what do you do? I'm Mike Rapika. I host, lead, co-founder run club called Parkdale Roadrunners. I like to think I connect people and I, I just do random stuff that makes me happy. I try to fill my cup as much as I can. That's a very, very good start. Uh, okay, let's start with uh, the Roadrunners. Tell us what it is and the reach that it has. In its simplest terms, it's a run crew. Um, I, there's a difference between, in my mind, between run clubs and run crews. I call it a run crew. Um, and it, it's in an area in Toronto, Canada, that um, was, I would say, was underserviced for a very long time. And so we wanted to have something that brought people to the neighborhood. So. At its base, it's it's a collection of runners that get together once, twice a week, organized, mm-hmm. and, um, and and we run together. Deeper than that, it's a lot more than that to a lot of people. But you know, I think on surface, that's what you could classify it as. And its reach, it's really hard to say because this run crew movement has a lot of partners, um, different crews globally. So I would say the reach you can't really I, you can't measure. Um, just because anytime anybody comes into out of town or when we travel, that reach grows. Um, so it's it's an ever expanding thing. That's awesome. Um, what's the difference between a crew and a club? <laughs> this uh, people may disagree. May disagree. And can I? I would like to say that like my views and my history on things is my interpretation. I feel like when I do things, um, I'll always get like that didn't happen this way. I'm like, but it for me so <laughs> I try to tend not to uh, to to 
hold people's revisionist history as as fact at all times. But um, I, I will say that just to say this: of I look at run clubs more as people that have come, say, from college or that have gone into something organized or even say brands supported or um, organized things as more of like, ah, I hate this term, but I'm gonna use it, more of like norm core type of stuff of mm -hmm. just like people who are just looking to do a couch to 5K or the complete opposite end of that spectrum are, are training groups, things of that nature. Whereas a crew really stems from a lot of subculture. Uh, and I think you'll find this globally of like, there's there's things about run crews that you don't see in normal run club culture. Mm -hmm. um, and that's a lot of unsanctioned races, a lot of really cool <laughs> design uh, apparel type of stuff. It's like when you go to a race, you can usually tell a run club versus a run crew just by how they carry themselves and, and how they like mob in together. And it's really a family at that point. Yeah. So one would be almost like, uh, and I, I'm not saying that you're saying this, but just for my own understanding, a club would be almost like functional. Like I want to do this, so I should join this kind of group that's going to help me do that. Where a run crew would be more of like a lifestyle. Thank you. Can we just take this that whole my whole answer out and just use yours? Because I like the way you paraphrase that. Um, <laughs> I know a lot of your story is rooted in subculture, and we were chopping it up earlier, which I, I loved about things like unspoken rules, and, and we'll get into all of that. Um, but how did how did the Roadrunner start? It started as a joke between friends. Uh, I used to own a cafe in Parkdale, <clears throat> excuse me, called The Mascot. And I'll give some context there. We called it context there. We called it The Mascot because there wasn't anything in that neighborhood where people were going there for. It was a place that you would kind of either skirt through or if you were going there, you weren't going there for a positive reason. Let's say that. That's what kind of Parkdale was at the time. And we wanted to really like drive people towards where we were, where we grew up, high school, all that. So um, we called this place the mascot because we wanted it to be like the foam finger in the ground and like we are the mascot of Parkdale type of thing. Just so it was an art gallery and a cafe and we made this t-shirt that said, um, I'd rather be smoking on the front and on the back it said the mascot run club because the person who I started with, um, Steven, he was just, we were out one day and I'm like, you wanna go for a run? He's like, I'd rather be smoking. And I was like, that's a t-shirt. <laughs> so we made a couple and we started running around the city with them as a joke. And people would come into the cafe asking us like, what day is the run club? I'm like, oh, there's no run club. Yeah. Kept happening. We're like, I think we might have to start a run club. And Steven Googled like, what is a run club? What do they do? Like, what do you do? We had no clue. And um, we started this thing and we started it for our friends. At that point, we were living a, I'll speak for myself, living a, a life that, you know, I've changed out of. Like there was a lot of, a lot of substance abuse and just things and a lot of partying at that time. And it was a way for us to like rechannel our energy. Yeah. Um, but with our friends, it was something more along the lines of like, how do we see each other in the daylight as opposed to just doing it till two, three in the morning and like, and it being unproductive. So that's how it started. There was a lot of like graphic designers, small business owners, always had a high amount of nurses for some reason within the crew. Um, but that was it, was like, it. we wanted it to be for us and there were no rules. We didn't go and look at like what a training plan was or what did we need to do. It was just like, let's just do something where we can, it's so out of our realm of understanding what this is and start it. And 
all we knew was that we had to be consistent. If we were gonna do it, it was every Tuesday, same time every week, rain or shine, on time, no one left behind. That was our model. And eventually we turned it into Parkdale Roadrunners and to move it away from the mascot and actually like really wanna represent our part of the city. And that was 13 years ago. That's crazy, man. So if you were just to take a guess, it crew from this really small group, how many people would you estimate are not just directly involved, but even kind of like tangentially involved? Oh, hundreds is an understatement. Like there's, I would, I mean, if I was to put a number, like you say, like out of that expanding thing, I would say may, there would be at least four to 500 people that say that they are like Parkdale Roadrunners or have been. Um, but, you know, last week was freezing cold in Toronto and you're still getting about 100 people out on a Tuesday, 80 to 100. So it's, yeah, it's a beast that, you know, you can't, there's no rhyme or reason within the numbers. And the beauty of what we do and who we are as captains, we don't care about numbers. We started a thing on Sunday where there's like 20 or 30 people and I have just as much enjoyment as that as I do when there's 150 people out. Probably more because it's less of a headache to manage yeah, yeah. 30. But um, it's not about the size. It's really about the energy that people bring within it. So you already went to something I'm, I'm interested in when you said the word captains. When it's just like, oh, hey, let's get together and do a run. It's like you and five friends or maybe even you and 20 friends. But now when we're talking like big groups of people, at what point, um, sorry, you said it was uh, how many years? Uh, this is our 13th, 13th year. 13th year. Yeah. At what point did you say, oh crap, we actually have to start organizing this? Early on, within the first few years, um, very early on. And it was always, uh, Stephen and I, I would take the front, he would take the back, and then we would switch vice versa. And so we would always make sure that there was somebody leading and somebody at like the caboose or whatever, just mm -hmm. to make sure everybody got safe. Mm -hmm. As the group grew, we split into two groups. So now it's like, a 5k and an 8k or whatever in and around like 5k and a 10k and then so you would need a front and back for either of those so once we started to split off of that then you needed more either captains or group support mm -hmm. and um and now we're still at that format of two groups front and back of every group but um in our support in our root support group channel that i you know schedule there's i think 35 people outside of captains that are that are on that list that have like put their hand up saying like when you need us we're here to to make sure either we're leading or we're making sure everybody gets back safe. So you seem like a, a person and you know, I know we just met today, but you seem like a person who is very invested in community and having like a sense of place and, and really, especially how like I've noticed you kind of step back from the limelight. You're always talking about we instead of I. Um, it's interesting that you also find yourself in this kind of like leadership position and it seems like an unintentional leadership position that you found yourself in. So how's that been for you in terms of like taking on that level of responsibility? It's certainly not something I looked for um, and it's not something I, I love who I do it for. I don't necessarily love doing it in terms of like I'm the guy when we threw, we just threw a massive event in October. Uh, it's called Bridge the Gap. We can go into that in a bit. Um, but the last day there was an after party and um, incredible, like there's an energy I chase when I create. And this was that energy. It was like 90s house party sweat coming off of the ceiling, like just like basement vibe. That was, it was everything. Scratch Bastard had the like move room just like going. It was, it was perfect. 
And there's a photo of one of my co-captains of and myself sitting in the back corner of the club, just like with this smile on our face. And I love that somebody captured that moment because like I like being that like for lack of a better term, like proud father in the corner, just watching, like watching everything happen. I don't want to be in the center dancing. Yeah. Um, and that's kind of how I feel with the group. Like it's, I want to create for the others and I, but I want them to have the experience. And um, it, it, so it, it's, it's forced leadership in that sense of like, yes, you're, you're creating it, but it's just my nature of, I don't, I don't like, being the one talking about it. I'd, I'd rather be the one doing it. So one of the things I hear a lot about uh, when I'm out talking to people about leadership all the time, and some people, it finds them, like in this case, and other people, they seek it out. And I don't find that to be like, oh, and this means you're a good leader or a bad leader. But the one thing that I, um, I'm always interested in is people's, how people manage it psychologically. So I, I run a company, and I've always kind of been a leader in my of my group of friends and I find myself I struggled with it a lot because I can't help it in a lot of ways where it's like oh, I just end up kind of creating this thing but also I don't like um, I don't mind having kind of like being in the center of things but I don't like managing people's expectations of how I should be or what should happen it's like I don't know I'm just on this kind of crazy freight train trying to make things happen and it's always been something that it's like it's a bit of a burden, but I don't really know how I could not do it because I'm just that guy. And so it requires a lot of energy uh, for me to kind of manage the emotional side of it. How about for you? Like, what is something that you've learned through being this unintentional leader about yourself that you that you really were surprised to to find about yourself that you liked? That was like something cool where you're like, oh, that's kind of neat that I've, I've discovered this about myself. I think... It's a bit of a self-awareness and being able to catch myself in moments. I, the, emotion, the emotional investment thing is very real. Um, and I pause when I say that because it's definitely something I struggle with be, because what I know is just because it matters to you doesn't mean it matters the <laughs> same way to somebody else. And I can't... So I, 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 I guess what I'm trying to say is like I can't put my expectation on somebody else to care as much as something that I do when they haven't been there for the 13 years or they might, this might matter to them right now, Mm -hmm. but when something on the side comes up that might take precedence, that's what takes precedence. Like there's very few thing moments in my life where I'm like, that matters more than what I'm doing Mm -hmm. with Parkdale. Um, And so I can't fault people for not having that. So I think it's just that awareness of being like, cool, that's where they are. Mm -hmm. This freight train is gonna keep moving. Mm -hmm. Um, and who do we need to put in place to actually make this thing move? Because ultimately, end of the day, I don't want this to live and die with me. Mm-hmm. But there's been times where I'm like, if I don't step up right now, it dies. Yeah, yeah. So it's the emotion side of it is real. It's totally real, man. I, I'll say that like some of the coolest stuff that I've been able to, to experience in my life has been just kind of, I, I find myself at the center of things in a good way a lot of the times. But also it's that like, you know, sometimes you're like, damn, I do not want to deal with this thing or I don't, I don't want to have this tough conversation or I don't want this person to be mad at me, but it kind of has to go this way. If there's one thing that's kept me up at night and kind of been something where I'm like, oh God, I wish I could step away from this. It's been that like human component of making things happen and just really not wanting to let people down. At the same time, you got to keep things moving if you want to make anything happen. 
So with that, I talked about one thing that you liked about, that you were pleasantly surprised to find about yourself. Has there anything that you've struggled with now that you've been being in a leadership position for so long, like something about you where you're like, this character of myself does not work in this in this thing, and I got to work on it. So, is there anything you've worked on as a leader? Communication. Yeah. Um, and I'm always working on it. I'm not comfortable speaking in large groups. Quite often, I'm not comfortable speaking one on one. Like I, it's when I when we're talking about being either in the center or in the shadows. Mm -hmm. I find joy in being in the shadows and whether that's me, the walks that I take or being in front of a group, like there's something I wish about myself was that I could be in, in that, the flip side of that role. I would love to be that person that can kind of like, whether it's puff up their chest or speak eloquently about what they're doing, like I'm envious of people that can't take that role on in leadership. Um, and I don't think that's an ego thing always. I think it's just like some people have that strength. Mm. Um, and for me, honest communication is something that I'm constantly working on because I'm, I'm very afraid of hurting somebody's feelings or not being able to say what I mean and I'm reacting from emotion. Mm. Uh, and ultimately, I don't want people to walk away. Like I want people to be happy where they are here because it matters so much to me. So. Um, quite often things don't get said and that's something I'm trying to change. Yeah. Um, so specific to, to what you guys do or what the group does, there's so much about it that's life changing. I would imagine like being involved in something that's like really deeply about being able to go out and run once a week and being involved in something that has more of like a family feel to it, like a lifestyle feel to it. I imagine you've probably seen some really big and inspirational changes that have happened in people's lives. Yeah. I mean, the easiest one for me is like, it's like not even just life changing, it's life making. Like some of the people that have come together are now married and have children. And like the amount of like little baby onesie Parkdale Roadrunners <laughs> things that I make, it like always brings me joy. In yeah. fact, I'm in the midst of looking for a new one because one of our, two of our runners just had, just had babies, but like literally, People have met at different races around the world, moved to Toronto, had baby, and then gone like gone back. And two of our people are living in England now, but one was from England, one was from Toronto. And um, so I think there's there's like that's the kind of biggest example I can give of like where I think this is the coolest thing that we've ever done is brought people together. Yeah. But then there's other things that are just simply like people running their first race for the like for the first time or. Again, like I'm not, I'm not the person that gets super close with a lot of runners just because there's a lot of emotions to deal with. Mm -hmm. So I'm more of like the pragmatic side of it, I guess, of just like, this is what we need to do. And, you know, granted, if you start doing long runs with people, stuff comes out. Like yeah, there's, yeah. you're spending two, three hours together doing something that's not very easy. You, you start, you start to learn a lot about people, which is amazing. Mm -hmm. um, but. I think the changing part of it is not necessarily like the race goal, which you will always hear like, I never thought I could do this, but it's all the things that people have developed along those times that I think lead into their life, the discipline. Um, there's just so many little, little things that I don't think people understand get impact, like get added onto their skill set in their day-to-day -day life just through this sport. Mm -hmm. 
Like, what are some things that get added to people's skills? Well, I mean, I think the, the, the first and foremost is the discipline side of it. Um, I think integrity, accountability, all of these things where you're just like, I know I need to be there for this group. It's bigger than me. For a sport that is so individual, mm -hmm. I always laugh when people say it's not the same as it was. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I'm like, can I swear? Oh, yeah. Motherfucker, you're not the same as you were. I'm not the same as I was. If I was, we'd be in a very different point 13 years later because I wouldn't be here. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. there's, but the energy is the same. And the same way you felt welcome when you came into this, that's what I have to make sure we're still creating for that person who started running during COVID, didn't know what community was. Their yoga studio was closed. Their CrossFit gym was closed, whatever it might be. And they were running along the waterfront and Converse by themselves. And now they've found this group of 100 people on a Tuesday night that this is now their, their people. Yeah. Like that's what we have to make sure we keep creating for people. And within that, it's the way we create that is that sense of familiarity that like the coming back every week, like the continuing of the conversations. Yeah. So I, it, that accountability piece is very important to me. Yeah, man, I love that. And like living in, the Toronto, in Toronto and then me living in Vancouver. It's like we live in these big cities that have kind of this autonomous feel to it. You know, you could be a person who just goes through your life and not really know community. You can live in a community, but you could also like not know your neighbors. My mom um, moved out from Calgary to come live with us because, uh, you know, there were some life changes. So she, she lives with us now. And I always laugh because my mom is like a neighborhood celebrity. She knows everybody. I'm like, damn, I've lived in this city for 25 years. I don't know people who live at the end of the street. She knows everybody. And that comes from like, she grew up that way. You know your neighbors, you know your community. We live in these cities where it's really easy to be autonomous, meaning it's really easy to not have a community. And I love that idea of like, because part of a community is being accountable. You have to have accountability. I love that. And I think that's the beauty of what the group has always tried to do is also give back to the community to mm -hmm. so let, let you know that it's not just about coming into the neighborhood, coming in on a Tuesday night or whatever, and then peace out, I'm going to go run with every other group. It's like, no, there, we, there is, thankfully, where we run out of Stagold right now, there's a um, community fridge in front. And so every week when the Strava roots go out or whatever, it's like, and please consider donating something to the community fridge if it's available to you. Oh, yeah. Or, you know, this, as I was mentioning, this Bridge the Gap thing um, that happened at the Waterfront Marathon um, earlier in the year, I guess in October, there was a charitable give back in terms of pri like prizing TCS, the sponsor was like, cheer situations got X amount. And there was different things where run crews, run clubs could unknowingly compete for something. Mm. Um, and we were able to raise $4,000. We got the first place prize of both um, categories. And we're able to give that to our, like the neighborhood community center that focuses on feud in, uh, insecurities and things like that for people specifically in Parkdale. Mm. Um, so I think there's always been, and that's just this year, there's always been something where um, one, of, one of our best friends was, um, his daughter was born nine weeks premature and ended up at the Ronald McDonald House. So every year the group would go cook for for the people of Ronald McDonald House. And like you would do, you would do a meal and raised $10,000 for St. Joseph's Hospital in the mental health wing. So there was always something that we were doing where it's like, yes, this is us, but there's also strength in numbers and we can 
use our strength to put dollars behind it to then give back to the community. So that's always been kind of at the ethos of what we're doing just to open pe people's eyes of like, yeah, this is Parkdale, but Parkdale needs more than you just coming to run through it. Yeah. Um, so, well, I, I think I, I keep saying we're going to get to the whole thing about growing up in subculture. We will, but like this is something that comes from that in my mind. Um, that not asking for permission, just doing something. So it's like, oh, I'm just gonna start this run crew, but not with this big architect it's gonna be this thing. I'm like, oh, I'll just start this thing. But it grows, it grows, it grows, and grows. And then it becomes the, what more can we do? Well, we can help people. We can do this and we can do that. I'm such a firm believer of the, like, the, the things that exist that aren't serving people. Like all of these like big institutions that are supposed to be helping, but are kind of like brutally failing left, right, and center. One of the things that I think is like crucially important is people being like, oh, I'll just do my own thing. And it doesn't have to be that you started it to serve uh, a certain population, but you could start something very cool and be like, oh, as a result of this being successful, now we can help other people. Um, I, love, I love the idea of not asking for permission and just doing something. Yes, I, that's the easiest way. Like that's always the easiest way to get something done. Um, and if you're doing it right, you're going to get the support. Yeah. And if you're not doing it, quote unquote, right in the city's eyes, who gives a shit? You're totally. still doing it. Totally. Like, I don't, I guess we've always operated under the lens of like, we don't need your support. Totally. Like, we've got the people, we've got the energy, we can do this. Yeah. And if your support comes, amazing. And we'll make it mutually beneficial. But I don't need somebody else to be able to do what I do. Yeah. Um, and that's like, that. there's a, there's something wonderful about that, knowing that like we've got what we need within the crew. Hell yeah, and I like that if the support comes, then great. Because like, I think like being too seeking the support of the system up front can stymie you doing something cool. Where it's like, listen, you do something cool, they'll come knocking later. Yeah, and I, th I'm hesitant to say this, but I do think that I've seen things over the course of the years and over the course as things have grown. People get into it for skewed reasons, for ego, for brand support, for all of these things. And those are the things that come and go. Yeah. And the people that I've really looked up to in the past and I felt my perception come from a very genuine place, they ebb and flow, but they're always there. Like, mm -hmm. And I know that you know, I can get my inspiration from, from that side. It's not always the shiniest thing in the moment, mm -hmm. but it's the thing that is always there because those shiny things fade and then they're gone. Totally. So. I, I don't know. I think that's where like a lot of my inspiration within this stuff comes from. Hell yeah. Um, so I've got, I've got two questions I want to hit and then let's go a bit more to your, uh, your backstory. So starting a run club, like a rug crew like this, there has to be some level of runners who are really established, who are used to running. They're, they're cool with it. But people who are like warming into the sport, how have you managed the side of trying to make it accessible to people? So, and I, when I say that, I also mean like um, people who have challenges with mobility, um, people who are not used to doing any level of, um, who aren't used to, to exercising necessarily, but also people um, who are differently abled. And also from, uh, I'm sorry, I'm asking you a really big one, but also like, so it's like uh, inclusive of all different um, 
types of uh, identities, uh, whether it be gender or sexuality, uh, men, women, transgender, or like what, are, what is the space that you are, what have you done to be able to make it as accessible as possible to people? Sorry, I know that's a huge yeah, question. No, that, um, and it's a great question. What I would say I've tried to always focus on is not letting politics or religion enter the crew space. Mm -hmm. We do, we get behind a lot of, uh, of social impact movements and causes and most often not spearheaded by us, but our friends in New York, they do run to protest. Um, and it's this incredible movement that you know, came up after the past few years of just injustice. And they'll run a thousand people deep through New York City and shut down streets and bridges. And it's so cool. And when they reach out for support or like, can you guys do something along the same day or things like that? Or Chinatown runners, they do the same thing around um, with the Stop Asian Hate movement mm -hmm. over the past few years. We've been able to coincide or bring our groups together to bring awareness for that. And then it becomes less about Parkdale much less about Parkdale, and then trying to bring the Toronto masses together. And so it's like, I don't care what crew you run with. That means nothing to me. Mm. Nine times out of 10, that still means nothing to me on a good day. But like this really, it's like, no, put your jerseys away, whatever, and just come out for something bigger than what this is. Mm. Um, or what, what you'd think a normal Tuesday is. So I think that's one way of doing it, of just trying to make it it's not about politics, it's not about religion. It's mm -hmm. end of the day, it's not that serious to tell you the truth, we run together. Um, and then outside of that, you know, we are, we've tried to, we've been called out about this in the past, just through like as captains change. And, you know, at one point there was three white male captains. Mm -hmm. And it was, you know, as a time when we, people were transitioning in and out, and you're like, great call out, like, you're right. And what do we need to do? And, you know, we really leaned into other people's strengths and other some people left, some people came in, um, but we've always tried to maintain at least a good sounding board of people where they would be able to, to feel comfortable in speaking with us and what's working and what's not working. Mm -hmm. For a long time, we had a ladies only run on Saturday mornings. And that over the course of years, it's, um, it didn't continue. Um, ultimately, the intention behind it was so that females would feel empowered of, enough to come to a Tuesday because that's what we had heard was like, we don't feel comfortable on a Tuesday run. It's too big. It's whatever the case may be. Um, and then as captains moved out, things changed and the vision changed. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, we decided to just bring it back all together. But that said, we've always tried to at least help people as groups started to splinter off and you know LGBTQI plus groups started and things like that. I was always happy to take meetings and figure out how they can do their own thing based off of what they learned at Parkdale. But like also take what you will and take what you won't, but here's what I've learned and here's some of the things that have been a pain point for me and let me know what you need for support. And so we've tried to, if it's not, directly connected to Parkdale, at least we've tried to put our, help put our input into what other people are creating. And I think what I've seen is that there's often been hostilities when when people break off from groups and start other groups. And I think that's like one of my proudest things of like, people have started to break off from groups and start other groups. And they've maybe have seen what they're missing from our group and want to create. 
And I'm like, that's amazing. And can I come? Yeah. Because you're creating something that I didn't have the vision to do, but you're inspired from what we did. Yeah, uh, I love that. I also, the one thing I was thinking about though is like when people, not necessarily in your case, but when people point out like a, a fault in anyone's process, it's like, like you said, hey, great call up, thank you. And when people start their own thing, some, very often I think they have the opportunity to realize it's like, it's not as easy as you think it was, <laughs> as, I think it, as you think it is. Like when you're building something, I can't, I won't speak for anyone. When I start to build anything, I don't build it with a sense of being like, okay, how do I exclude people? I think of the, how do I make something cool? Like, how do I make something neat? And the bigger it gets, it's like, okay, well, how can I make this cooler for everyone? It's just not that easy. There's so many angles to manage and to think about. And that's why it's so great to get feedback. But one of the things I always hope that people learn when they start something new where they go, oh, I understand why that happened. It isn't that easy. And it's great to bring ideas to people and say, hey, this is how you can be more inclusive without being harsh about it because be, w recognizing the intent is not to exclude people. Yep. I, you don't ever want to see anybody fail, like especially when they're starting from such a pure place as that. Um, and that's like point blank period. And I, but I do think that people see this and be like, They've got brand support. They've got this. They've got, you know, it's it's easy enough to do, and it is easy enough to do, especially at times when brands now are looking to this culture to be able to monetize off or or tell their story through the work that runners are doing, especially within like the crew culture side of things. Right. But when you start off like that and you don't realize that brands shift strategy very quickly you're that shiny thing. And mm -hmm. that thing that is so pure, it could still be pure to you, but you're, you're building off of a support system that you didn't need, but now you're reliant upon. Totally, totally. One of the best things that was ever said to me, um, my friend Chris Wren, shout out to Chris, friend of the show. Uh, he runs a label called Bridge Nine Records. And they were pretty established like early on. And I'd said to him like, oh, like it must be so cool to make you're living off of music. He was like, oh, I don't draw a salary from Bridge Nine. He has a, a separate business. Um, and he was like, I take all my money from that. And I was like, what? Like, what? That doesn't make any sense. And he was like, as soon as you make the money, your money off the thing you're passionate about, it's compromised. And you have to start making choices on what will make you money instead of what you think is cool. I could, I, I want to meet this person. And Chris, <laughs> yes, shout out to you, friend. Um, the, I, that has been the one thing I think that has kept our group going for so long was that what, whether it's brand support, whether it's like in and out support, activation support, whatever that might be, it has always gone directly back to the crew. Luckily, my captains, myself, we have decent jobs, like we, decent paying jobs, I should say, like we can live. It's never been about, here's 500 bucks each. Yeah. You know, like it's always, okay, cool. We have this, how do we give this back to the crew? What can we do? Last year, we used some of our support to bus people like a couple hours outside of the city and run trails once a month. And just because we didn't, Toronto doesn't have the greatest trail system, but it was also about like bringing people together, getting back on that like, we're on a school trip vibe, literally renting yellow buses yeah, and getting yeah. people out for the day and then having whatever pizza and beer after, whatever that might look like. But it's always like, cool, we've got, X amount of money, how can we do something different or as something outside of what we normally do for the crew to actually 
ex experience something, whether it's product, whatever that might be. If it's a product company that's helping us out, cool. We want to give it to people. Mm -hmm. So it's the second I truly believe that that like that money becomes between, especially the captains, mm -hmm. it's over. Totally, totally. All right. So the final question before we get a, a bit more into you, um, Parkdale, tell us about it. Like. You, you seem like a guy who's like committed to where he grew up. So tell us about, about Parkdale and why, not why it matters to you, but I guess like what would you want people to know about Parkdale and like why it's at the center of this? Yeah, I would, it's a beautiful, it's, uh, it's this like chaotic area of like in the mix of like what it was in the past, which was very a seedy area versus like, transitioning to a much more gentrified area. Yeah. I will be the first one to say I am at fault for helping that by opening the mascot because we thought we were doing something cool with this little art gallery and cafe. Mm -hmm. And then all these restaurants started coming in and what we, you know, first, our first year of operation was $1,200 a month for this massive space. Going into our fifth year, it went up to $4,800. And that was just like, okay, we can't do this anymore. <laughs> so I've, I, I, I'm at fault for starting it. And I've been pushed out because of it, so yeah, like yeah, in yeah. terms of business. So it's this, like, it's this very much a push and pull type neighborhood. Um, and yeah, like it was a place where, you know, when I was coming up, that's where we would go to hang out and do dirt and all of that stuff. And, you know, I ended up going out summer school at the local collegiate there and like it was I was there was just oh, I grew up just a tiny bit north of there but there was always something about Parkdale and the grid about it that I gravitated towards um there used to be a layup there where we used to paint trains and they were like just reminiscing about this the other night with some friends we were like oh man like it used to be the wild west down there mm -hmm. so that's some of the energy that I that I love about it and what you'll still see within it is there's a ton of mom pa shops. It hasn't been taken over. There's not a Starbucks in the neighborhood. Like there's some really great bakeries and cafes and restaurants and this incredible Tibetan community that is, it's thriving in Parkdale. So the same way I look at like areas of Toronto, like Kensington Market, which is like the melting pot of Toronto, you could say like, mm -hmm. this is like that side burner to me of yeah. like just people from all over different cultures, races, religion, everything just thrown into this one area. And it's this bit of like organized chaos that just seems to work. Yeah. Um, the around the idea of gentrification, because like, you know, something like a run crew is like, you know, that's like pretty modern culture, you know, at the same time, it's something that's so, um, I don't know, there's just something so like visceral about it and real about it, like people come together to just to do something together, exert themselves together. But like, Gentrification happens, and um, that story that you just told about, like I started this thing, I ended up, because it was successful, I ended up getting pushed out. Like that's kind of the story of people initiating something and creating something cool somewhere that, that draws eyes. But around that, like most people, so I'm, I'm gonna be 49 this year. Um, I grew up in punk and hardcore. I've always kind of moved to the area of the city that kind of was like a little bit more like, had more of that feel where it was a bit on the outskirts or not the outskirts, but it was like, I guess CD is the way it's like, you know, it's a more of a raw neighborhood, yeah. like a real neighborhood, but it changes over time. <sighs> Knowing that gentrification, especially with how real estate is now and like this, the whole, that whole nightmare scenario, you got to live somewhere. And so the place that you're living, you want cool things to happen and you want to be doing cool things. And you got to realize, of course, you know, that means it's going to draw eyes. 
For you, what's the balance between doing something cool within a neighborhood that celebrates the neighborhood and, and keeps uh, creates community while also respecting and helping maintain the existing culture that's there? We have a responsibility to talk about it, yeah. and that's it. Like, and you know, over the when we get 140, 150 runners on a Tuesday night, like we have to be the one that. Unfortunately, it's usually me the one that's like. This is not your neighborhood. Mm -hmm. The people that you run by and you scare the shit out of because there's 150 <laughs> people running by them, <laughs> you have to give them the heads up. Yeah. Like there is like you cannot, there's no way you can shoulder somebody to move them out of your way. This is not your thing. And it's still Parkdale. Like you could be at risk by doing like by being a dick to somebody. So like have the respect for where you are and then going back to that, like the give back to the community, I think that really lends itself to like people understanding what the community needs still are. Mm -hmm. And it's not this shiny polish thing. There is still a lot that we can do within it. So respecting that. Um, and there are bits of like every last Tuesday of every month, we do a social run where the whole group runs together, one pace, one group. Mm -hmm. And in the summers, we'll, we try to like go out and um, either bring, say, momos or something like that back to the group from a local restaurant or we try to go support a local restaurant or venue or whatever that is. So really actually trying to get people into the Parkdale community mm. itself to help economy, to help just local businesses get some visibility. Mm. Uh, and I think that's, that's our little way of trying to keep the shine on it. Mm. Plus, you know, we, we I, whatever put up thousands of stickers that have Parkdale written all over them and they're all over the city. Like whenever I, luckily I'm blessed enough to travel a lot. Mm -hmm. They're everywhere. And I always laugh when it get, comes back on Instagram, like Parkdale Roadrunners was blah, blah, blah. And you're just like, oh yeah, like that's our little way of like, also trying to put some shine on a neighborhood that you would never know about if you didn't make it to the west side of Toronto. Totally, man. So like Monica and I live in uh, Strathcona uh, in Vancouver. And it's this neighborhood where it's like, I never want this to change. It's like, awesome. It's amazing. It's just like this little self-contained little world. And I know it's going to change. We've got a big hospital coming in that's just uh, going to be like about a kilometer or two away from us. And we know it's going to be flooded with all these new people and all, the, all this new housing. I feel like we're like in this like maybe... I don't want to say the last days in the neighborhood because that's I think that's too dramatic. But it's like a big tidal wave of change is coming. One of the things that her and I talk a lot about is like kind of feel like how do we live in this neighborhood in the coolest way possible where we're just like supportive of the of the existing culture and just like just be a part of the of the neighborhood as it embra I don't know, embraces but handles this change that's coming. I mean. Funny, I one on one of my old photo albums is a sticker I took down from a spot in Vancouver, and it, I always refer to it. It's like the only constant is change, mm -hmm. and I always go back to I don't know why this one sticker, and I've heard the, like I know the quote, but like it's for something this visual about it, and I always remind myself of that. Is like you can't fight the change. Mm -hmm. There are people, the only people that can come into Parkdale and buy a two million dollar house are the people from outside of Parkdale. Mm -hmm. So there's going to be change. There's going to be people that don't understand the ecosystem of it and want a change. And that's just the dynamic of, of change. Yeah. Um, so I do think what I love about it is like some of the 
WhatsApp and neighborhood groups that you, you know you quite often have to mute because they just go so wild. But it's like people that have lived there for a long time that are homeowners that do actually like care about the neighborhood. And I'm not saying new homeowners don't by any means, but I'm like, they have a connection to the past. They are the same ones that are like, no, we need these clinics. No, we need public space. No, we, and so it's not a complete changing of the guard. It's like, you can come in, but like get on side with us. Yeah. Um, and I think that's really special to see. Like there is still such a, like a strong pride to this neighborhood that like, I'm, I'm honored to still be there. Oh yeah. Let's go into your story. Um, so, cause like throughout this whole thing, we've been kind of like tracing the lines of having to do a subculture. And I know we're going to get into that in your story, but, um, where, where were you born and raised? Born in a town called West End. So it's uh, Freeport, Grand Bahama Island. Okay. And so, when did you come to Toronto? Came to Toronto for grade school. So kind of like grade one, grade two ish. Yeah. So, uh, and tell me if you don't want to talk about this, but you'd said kind of like the seeds of rebellion started with you <laughs> when, when you moved here yes. and ended up in this school that was like fairly strict school. Yeah, it was like an immersion school. Um, and if you didn't know, it was a Ukrainian school. Um, and my mom's Ukrainian and it was where, it was like a block from our house. So it only made sense and I get it. Um, but it, I, I had never even heard the language of Ukrainian before. Like mm -hmm. I was, I was Bahamian, like mm -hmm. I'm, pretty sure I came up with an accent because I know the rest of my family had one. Like I was, uh, it, I, I was Bahamian and I still, I would still say I, I call Bahamas home. Mm -hmm. um, and it was very much, I'm going to date myself, but like principals, nuns, whatever teachers could hit you. They <laughs> like the ruler got broke out a few times because it wasn't that I was bad, which I probably was. So I shouldn't say that, but like, I didn't know the language and it was their way of reinforcing like how you need to learn. Um, I can have vivid memories of the rings on these nuns hands that they would just almost like, just like rub into your skull, like a noogie, I guess you could say. Mm -hmm. And that would be like punishment or the ruler, but. That's I so mean, fucked up, man. But the Bahamas was no better. I remember being hit with a ping pong paddle in the Bahamas. Like it's just <laughs> like how, as Catholic school, I guess is how yeah, I look at yeah, it. Yeah. Um, but that very much like that was till grade six was what was going on there. Mm -hmm. And that's all I knew. So I very much like rebelled against ever wanting like the Ukrainian side of my heritage, wanting to learn the language, any of that stuff. Um, so like I came up in Catholic school, I grew up in Calgary and we used to, they had like the strap, you know, and, <laughs> and there'd always be these rumors like, oh, like, you know, the kid in grade four got the strap. And it was like, it's so crazy to think that there was a time in our lives where it was like, Oh yeah, an adult in school can hit you with a strap. And I know a lot of people, especially like I don't want to I don't want to minimize the experiences of other people who've experienced far worse yeah. than that, but like how that was just a normal thing in our in our lives. Completely normal. Like there was not there's even saying this like I don't think that it's weird just because that's what happened to to the bad kids or whatever. I have this complete like vivid memory of the Bahamas. There was like three of us that got in trouble and the second kid broke the ping pong paddle and I was third and I was like, yeah, my man, thank you so much. And like, I think it shook the teacher that much that like I got off. 
And I was, I was Wait, like, I'm so, so the first kid got the first ping kid pong, got it, and then the second kid they got whipped so much that the ping pong battle broke. Broke, yes. And I was third. Oh, my God. <laughs> I was like, I was, oh man, that Fate was like intervene for you, man. right? That's it. Yeah. So I was like, maybe there is a god. <laughs> okay. Twisted god. So you said though, this is where like kind of the seeds of of rebellion were sown. Yeah. So from that, from you know, kind of like your these early experiences. When did you first get in touch with anything that we would kind of refer to as being subculture? Um, I got a touch of it, but didn't understand it. Um, I would say early on hip hop type stuff. I have a brother who's 12 years older and I would go to like his basketball games and stuff. And on the drives home, they'd be listening to like Public Enemy, Houdini, things like that. And I knew there was something different, but I wasn't old enough to figure out what this something different was. But like listening to, I don't know, just Chuck D, some of the things he had to say. Like, there was just something that was like, I knew there was a message there, couldn't figure it. Um, and then we had, we lived in a duplex, and so there was always families coming in from like either the Ukraine or whatnot that would use this bottom floor as a starter home when we moved back to Toronto and then kind of move out or from the Bahamas as people would come in. And there was one family, um, the Nelsons, and they brought up like, I remember the first thing they put me onto was Rob Bass and DJ Z Rock. It takes two, and I was in like grade five or six or something. And that, like, that was kind of when I was like, oh, there's something different here. Like, there's, and not that, like, that song has like the most meaning to it, but like just seeing what it did and how it brought this family together through music, I was like, okay, there's something here. So that's when I think the music side of it switched for me. But it wasn't until mm, maybe around the same time there was a, uh, a tour that came through Toronto and it was like uh, the Powell team, I think it was like the, uh, like the Schmidt, Schmidt Sticks guys, a couple and like some OJ2 team riders or something like that came through and they built a half pipe. And I remember thinking my little skateboard store was like the epicenter of like my world. And then going to this thing and seeing thousands of kids with skateboarders at the like CNE and I was just like, what in the world is happening here? Like there was no, we didn't have ESPN. I didn't know about, there was no, you know, X games or anything. And I was there, I thought there was just a handful of us. And that was a moment where I was like, oh, oh, this is very different. Like, what is this? So it, then there was a lot of curiosity within that sort of subculture stuff. But then that led into like the meeting of the worlds of like me going into high school and it was around the time of like the questionable video and things like that where you're, you're seeing some of the music I listened to ver with the skateboarding and the connection of the two. And this is like 90s stuff and like kind of the, in my mind, the glory days. Mm -hmm. And that's when it was like, okay, this is now where it's all come together for me. By that point, I was already writing graffiti, skateboarding, doing all of this stuff and then you don't, I didn't think of it as anything special. It was just what we did. But through the bonds that were formed, through the, you know, the just camaraderie that was there and how you learn, like, these people are going to ride with you no matter what happens. Like, something goes down. These are your people. And, like, how do you, how do you protect your people at the same time? I think that was the, the beginning of subculture for me. Yeah, um, totally, man. I, so I, I came up in punk and hardcore and skateboarding. Skateboarding was the, um, the doorway to that. Uh, that idea of protecting your people, protecting your crew, and also being a part of something that 
other people just don't understand. Yep. And they don't understand it in a good way. Like, oh, that's neat. What do you guys do? Or they don't understand it and they're like, oh, that sucks. Like, screw you guys. Something I want to hit on, though, that very few people, I think, really know about, and we'll only talk about it to the depth that you want to, is uh, graffiti writing culture. Mm -hmm. How old were you when you got into that, that's, that world? Again, older brother, we would go back home from church on Sundays and he would let me, like, we'd watch a movie or whatever. And there was, I cannot, it wasn't, it wasn't Star Wars. I know it wasn't Star Wars. It was a movie, and I'll have to ask some of my friends about this. Um, but there was a white train. It was the search for the white elephant. And I remember being around eight, nine years old, like, what is this white elephant searching for the one white train that these kids could paint? I was like, a, that was my earliest memory of it. And then as, I was in like grade eight, grade nine. There was a kid uh, who his name uh, his name was Elvis, and he had a tag, and he was like the the like Parks and Rec water wading pool guy, and he was this cool dude, Elvis, and uh, he had this tag, and I was like, what is this tag? And around that same time, I started opening my eyes, and like people like Ren and Bass and people like that were in Toronto, and I'm like, there's people writing things, instant karma. And I'm like, what is this instant karma? And, what brand is putting this on every garbage can? And then I realized it's just somebody writing something and I didn't know what it meant. But by that point I had a tag and now I'm going to basketball tournaments and stuff with school and my tags are going up in other people's schools. And then once grade 10 science class came around, I met the guys that I would later just like write with for years and have now gone on to become someone like globally recognized graffiti writers. And these were people that, you know, we, we moved together to Vancouver to be able to paint trains. And we had done all of these things, but it was from this sense of like, these are the same guys I was skateboarding with. They were the same guys that, you know, I could lean on for whatever. And within the graffiti side of it, it was like, there was, for me, there was no difference between hip hop. What they were listening to at the time was probably more, grunge era type stuff, Chili Peppers and then, but Chili Peppers, which led then into Nirvana and stuff like that. That was kind of the separation of our high school. It was either you were grunge or hip hop. And, um, and the connection of the two outside of like, didn't matter what music you were listening to, but us doing the art and running from people and trying to find that thrill, that was the like, oh, this is the high we're looking for. Um. We had talked earlier when, before we started, um, started the interview about like the unspoken rules of subculture. And I know like graffiti writing has got an incredibly rich and pretty guarded history. You know, like I know it's like there's been books and documentaries done on it, but even still it's like a relatively like mysterious world because of all, all of the reasons. Um, what was your first introduction to like the secret rules that exist and kind of govern a subculture? Ooh, I don't know that it was like an introduction to it. I think it was just, you learned as you went, like you learned, you don't talk to the cops. You learn, like you don't tell who people who your partners are. Like you also learn, this isn't about, I learned, this isn't about me. I'd rather be mysterious behind the tag that soon as you know, it's me. I can get in trouble. Mm -hmm. But if you don't know it's me, it, you don't know what it is. And I'm not gonna go out there being like, I was, I wouldn't even say I was like 
I was just, I was like the bomber of the crew. Like I was the kid out there just looking to release aggression at that point. Like, whereas and my partners, they were, they were up to some serious work in terms of like actually getting their piecing skills down and which led to like traveling the world and having their art showcased at some of the greatest galleries and some of the stuff they're doing right now is absolutely insane being featured at like the f1 in monaco with sculptures and stuff like um or sorry in um in somewhere in saudi arabia um but so back to your point it wasn't about when did you learn it was just like you learned um there wasn't a moment i remember a piece in toronto uh t roach did and in the corner of the piece it just said a thought bubble and uh it was a krs1 quote you know the rules and you knew the rules like it was as simple as that you know the rules yeah um so there's there's two sides to that there's there's the good side like nobody sits down and is like okay like i'll open up some scroll and be like here are the commandments you pick it up as you go along so the good side is if you are in it and you're really in it and you're paying attention you're going to understand the rules but the flip side to that is we operate without a roadmap and it's kind of like unspoken rules that can that can be difficult in the real world as well so for you what's as you've built things in your life, whether it be the cafe that you were running or this this uh, run crew or even what you've done professionally, how has that understanding of subculture both helped you and has it ever uh, caused issues or challenges for you? Yes, um, it has helped. And <laughs> yes, it has caused challenges. What I will say is, and what I didn't say is like, there are and were mentors. And I don't look at a mentor as Back then, I would say it would, would have been an age thing, like guys that had been up in it a few years before. This was such a young art form at that time that like the people that had been doing it for a couple of years were OGs in the game. And luckily, some of them turned out to be some of our closest partners and whatnot. So there were bits that were sprinkled in of like, it wouldn't be a direct, this is what you need to do, yeah. but like practice this or, you know, little, little, if you're paying attention, you're going to pick it up type moments. Um, and I think that's interesting in a moment, as you say, is like going into the other worlds or business worlds of like, I guess the way I operate is like, I'm not going to give you everything. You have to figure stuff out, mm -hmm. but let me help you. Like, let me give you an, an opinion. doesn't have to be your opinion, but this is another way to look at things. So I think that's in a sense of how I like to operate is. I want people to come with what they're passionate about and what their strengths are. And let me try and help you build into those because once you start getting derailed from your strengths, it's just a thing. But if you can really lean into like what you care about, you're going to be passionate about it. Um, and if that's all that I'm doing to mentor, quote unquote, I think that like that, that's invaluable. Um, and I try to, you know, do this with my, my nephews and stuff. It's like, just do what you care about. Yeah, but I'm going to university, I don't care about that. Like, what I'm going, it doesn't matter. Like, finish what you're doing, but also keep what you care about. And that's going back to the Parkdale side. It's like, it's always been like the, the thing that fills the cup. It can also be the thing that drains the cup. But I like to think no matter what you're doing in life, make sure you have something that can fill your cup where you can pour that energy into because that will then fuel back the other thing that you might be dreading, but you're gonna get inspiration from somewhere else. Don't put all your eggs into that one basket. 
Yeah, I, man, that resonates with me. Like, coming up in skateboarding and then punk and hardcore, there's all these secret rules that I just, like, I, you know that idea, like, you're part of something that has, like, an element of danger to it as well. Yeah. You're like, there's something about it, right? You feed off of a little bit. And uh, playing in all these, like, like CD clubs throughout the years, like, there's something about it. I would say when I got into, like, real deal professional world, um, two things really stood out for me. One is just the assumption that like the thing that I'm into is cooler than anything you're into. And the first time I kind of got like in the, in the workplace, people are like, you know, we literally don't give a shit about that at all. I was like, at first I was like, well, of course, like you don't, cause you don't get it. But it's like, no, really, we don't. We don't, care. Oh, we don't not only do we not care about that, we don't care about your attitude about that. And I was like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> and I realized like, oh, there's actually like rules outside of these rules that also matter. Like just cause you're into skateboarding or you're into this or that, and you've got kind of like a, you figured out how to move in that world does not mean anything if you have to exist in like a different ecosystem. And I had to really check a good reality check for me. Which I didn't answer in, I realized I didn't answer your question fully last, but thank you for bringing me back to that. I struggle with corporate hierarchy yeah. of you're going to go talk to a director about something when you could have just talked to me or a VP when we could have had this conversation, but your chain of command is to go talk to this person. Mm -hmm. That's not how I came up. So those like things like that, I'm like, I don't know how to play that game very well. And I'm, Sometimes you have to try and play the game. Mm -hmm. It feels inauthentic to me, but that's how the game in the system where you're choosing to take a paycheck from, that's how the game gets played. Totally, man. So, well, I, like when I was, I was working at this, it was the last, it was the last place I worked at before I went into what I do now. It's the last place I worked as a, an addictions therapist. The person who ran the whole agency was just like a very neat, like not rude, abrupt and rude person. And, you know, I'm like a guy that came up in punk and hardcore and they were being really just like rude to me. And so I was just like rude right back and like kind of giving them the gears yeah. a little bit, a little directly. And they were just taken aback. I'm speaking it right now as it's a good thing, as if it was like, yay me. No, so my yeah. boss came to me later who by all accounts was like a pretty nice person. He was like, hey, like, you know, you did this thing and I'm basically... I'm like defending your job right now and you've put yourself in this position. It's like, oh, this isn't, like I'm not out like playing in a punk band right now. I'm working and actually my work should be about the clients, but I'm making it about my own weird power struggle because I didn't like how this administrator spoke to me. It's actually, in, it could impact my ability to be of service to people in the community. And it's this like weird ego trip of like, the thing that I had to learn to check my ego was, I don't like the way this world operates, but I have chosen to be in this world. And do I put my ego first and expect the environment to adapt to me or do I adapt to the environment in a healthy way? Yeah, it's bang on. And something you just touched on there is like, I chose to be here is something that I tell myself and that's whatever you want to call it, mantra or whatnot, but go bring this back to running is quite often when we're in a race or where you're doing something where you don't want to be doing going back to that i chose to be here i paid for this like it it really re reframes things because ultimately it's all in your mind with like i'd say most things is like how difficult is something is is how difficult you're making it be mm -hmm. there's very few things in my life that 
you know, I'm put in the position where I can't physically do it or, you know, it's actually too hard or I'm too tired. It's like, no, can I mentally do that? If I can mentally do it, I can physically do it for the most part. Um, so I think that like that goes same thing into into the work environment is like I'm choosing to be here and there's some roles that I have to now play within to be here because um, I signed up for this. Mm -hmm. so, like 100 um, percent. The other thing with subculture that I that I find and I want to tie this back to the to the run crew. There's not really a plan usually. Right. So it's like you, know, you start a band. Right. It's like oh, I'm in my band, you know. Well, yeah, band's got a life, a life cycle, and your life cycle of your band's gonna be a year or two years or five years or seven years. There's very few bands that are gonna do it forever, right? And so, like, if I think of my world, it's like, you know, you've got a sick of it all, you've got an agnostic front. Like, awesome. But for most people, you're gonna be in a band between three to five to seven years. Then what? So, subculture is, is, seems to be, in a lot of ways, not tied to any long term planning, which I don't think it needs to be, because that could be weird in itself. But if we bring this back to, it seems like the wrong, the wrong crew was really started from just like the same grassroots, like subculture, like unspoken rules, let's just make something cool happen. But now you've got this big thing that hundreds of people are connected to. So what's your plan? My plan is to can stay, stay consistent and that's always been the plan. Uh -huh. Now, what that looks like going forward I answered this recently of like, of like, how do you control basically the subculture? And it was about the run crew movement in general. Like what direction does it go? Like subculture, you, you don't control it. It's a beast that you like you roll with yeah. and you change with it or you just leave it. Mm -hmm. But you can't, there's not one person that can intentionally do it. Like when I think of even like, music genres are changing like it's not it's the new thing that changes it mm -hmm. it's not the person that's in it that's like i'm gonna take this sound and i'm gonna flip it and everybody's gonna follow me it's always a risk in my opinion so i think as long as we can stay consistent in terms of who we are our core values trying to create from a similar energy that's got us to this point mm -hmm. because it's not about for me, it's not about redoing the same thing over and over to keep that energy. It's about building into the energy with new experiences. So as long as I and we get lit up from things like that, it goes wherever it wants to go. I don't care if it's four of us. I don't care if it's 400 of us. That energy is still going to be the same. And that's what's going to control the direction. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, perfectly said, man. I Even um, the business, so Cadence, I totally started it unintentionally. Um, I'd worked for this other dude for a number of years. I was telling you about it earlier and I just couldn't stand this dude. Like, like rich kid, grew up like a rich kid, like just enacted like a rich kid. And I hit a point where I was like, all right, you know, I've got to put my money where my mouth is. Like I, you know, I was like, like someone coming up in punk. I like always thought I knew better and whatever. I start this company and it was brutal. I mean, it was great because I was doing my own thing, uh, successful very early on, but like, the brutal lessons of like, oh, this is how you actually run a business. And year after year, every single year, I think of this cat and I'm like, okay, yeah, I think very poorly of this guy and I understand why he did this, 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 and this now because I've learned these lessons. Someone asked me recently like, well, what's the plan? And I was like, I feel like as a business owner, I should know what the plan is, 
but I still don't know what the plan is. Like, do good business, be of service to people, build a good, healthy culture, make sure everyone has like a good lifestyle. Like we pay everyone enough so they can li like really live and like own things and like own a home if they want to or all that. But there's not like a plan. I guess the plan is, is like, I want to grow and stay cool. That's it. That's the plan. And I think that comes from just like growing up and as, as a punk and just being like, I don't know how to plan 10 years out, but I do know how to plan my day yeah. and make my day as cool as it can be. Uh, yeah. And what does stay cool mean? Mm. Like who are you staying cool for is what I would look at it because like the people I thought I was staying cool for, my nieces and nephews, mm -hmm. they do not think I'm cool. <laughs> like I take, I took my nephew to New York. He wanted to hit some skate spots, took him to all the classic skate spots. Introduced him some some graffiti writers that like blew his mind. He couldn't believe he was meeting, and he still doesn't return my text. Like I think I'm like the cool uncle doing cool shit, and like he'll leave me on red without a problem. So you know, I like I I think it's like just do whatever lights you up because yeah, I I, I don't know. I I've, chasing cool is a dangerous thing. It is. Let me, let me qualify what I'm saying. I mean, stay. Stay cool for me. Like, it's mm -hmm. like, it feels good. It feels like I don't have any plan for the business outside of, I'm a little embarrassed admitting this uh, in a podcast. It's like, usually when I talk to business leaders, they're like, this is where we're going to be. That's my adult voice. This is where we're going to be in however many years. I'm like, I, I think that we will have like more reach. We'll be able to do more. We'll have more interesting people working in the company. We'll be able to do more things, but I really have no idea, and I don't really know how we're going to get there. I never know what the plan is. The plan is always just to go and have it be cool and, and just cool for us that we enjoy it. We like being together. Doing that has been an interesting ride, though, because instead of doing like kind of like advanced business planning, I always feel like I'm just like, oh, this, this thing came up. Let's do this thing. Yeah. Or, oh no, that thing came up and we have to, we have to pivot from it. So that, that not having a plan, I don't know how normal that is for, for normal like business people, but I would say that people, most people I know from subculture who have like developed a thing, whether it be a run crew or a business, seem to be light on planning, but big on just like kind of going with the flow and seeing where it takes you. Yes, and I hate being reactive, I'll say that. Like there's nothing that stresses me out more than being reactive to something. Um, so I do like to have an idea of what I want to do. And example, this Bridge the Gap thing we did in October where we brought in, like, we invited, shouldn't say brought in, we invited hundreds of run, runners from various run crews around the world that came to Toronto for the marathon and we did a pop-up shop, unsanctioned races, a relay from Niagara Falls to, to Toronto. Like everybody had a, a piece of something, massive carblow dinners, painted murals of like the people that started it. Like it was, it was a lot of fun. That I knew earlier on last year that that's a goal that I want to hit in October. So we built towards it, did a product collaboration with a um, company from Mexico, Hermanos Camori. A lot of cool little things that went into this. Mm -hmm. But that was one moment. So even the partners that we were working with, like, that's what we're going to build into. And I'm like, that's October. We have to go from January to October, keeping the crew excited and doing things. Like, yes, that's a moment for people to, to look and build towards but I still need to put people on buses and get them out to the trails. I still want to do so many different things that like light us up and keep me inspired to build into October. Um, and that could be simple as like new graphics, like 
one of our captains, Justin's an incredible graphic designer and probably downplaying all the other skills he has by calling him a graphic designer. But you know, when he comes up with a new graphic for something, I get so excited or we'll do a new batch of stickers. I'm like, this is the shit that lights me up. And that's what's then gonna transform into other ideas. So planning those moments along the way then turns into a job for all of us. So I like to stay a little bit up ahead just to give a little bit of like wiggle room, um, but I don't wanna be reactive to something. Totally, man. Um, all right, so we're heading towards the end. I'm gonna ask you three questions that are gonna become more difficult as we go along. But before we get to it, is there anything that you wanna add in, anything that you wanna hype up, anything you wanna drop in, anything you just wanna share with people? I mean, if this conversation about run crews excites you, the only thing I can do is um, pay homage to the architects and really shout out the bridge runners, which Mike Sayson crew out of New York and Charlie Dark out of, um, and his team of captains, Sanchia Kai out of London, England, um, the Rundem crew and follow them. They, they've started this, they keep it going. Bridge runners anniversary is 20 years this year. Um, it'll be a big thing, big bridge the gap event uh, there. So if anything catches your interest, like these are guys that were doing it before us. Funny thing is we didn't know that anybody else had this like crew mentality till we got on Instagram and we're like, oh, there's like-minded people elsewhere. And then the more you spend time with them, you're like, oh, we're like, they are like-minded. Like they all come from the same thing. They're a little bit older. They've seen a little bit more. They've experienced the culture in different ways, but it's all from the same sides of the culture. Yeah. Music, skateboarding, graffiti writing. Um, Man, skateboarding? Uh, graffiti writing and, and like the culture around hip hop seems to be like the core of so many things that you wouldn't even realize are totally that kind of spring from that. And it's wild because I think the people that came from that, especially in the 90s, are now people at say big brands or whatnot that are actually influencing how clothing, whatever car, whatever industry you might be looking at, like they are at the desks or in the boardrooms of now creating for the masses. So you're really starting to feel those influences within modern like mass culture, whatever you want to call it, just like everyday mainstream culture is what I should say. Um, and those like the fingerprints are there. So it's cool if you kind of take a look back and see, and there's some people I follow, I'm like, you guys have done so much for mainstream and you've been in the shadows the entire time. Oh yeah, I think it's, yeah, I, I love that and I love, I love how all of this stuff that, I mean, again, growing up in Calgary, it was like, I was just at the furthest distance to be able to be um, a consumer of those things, but forever changed my life, for sure. All right, you ready for your three questions? I'm ready to go. Okay, uh, the first one is, um, there are people who are gonna listen to this who are like, yeah, but how? Like, how do I start something that, not with the intent of creating something to the level that you have, but how do I start something cool and interesting that's going to make a difference to people and in any genre of anything any any thoughts about how you any words of encouragement of how people just get something started throw cool out the window <laughs> no i think you start it by finding what you're passionate about and actually like not what you're passionate about right now but like what's been a thread for you what what matters to you because the passion side of it doesn't necessarily need to be the activation side. It doesn't need to be the thing that kid, like I didn't care about running. I, running 
my nickname was Turtle growing up because when I played baseball, I couldn't run the bases. I could hit the ball, I could play, I was really good. Couldn't run the bases. Running was the bane of my existence. Mm-hmm. That I didn't do this because of the sport of running, yeah. which, um, don't get me wrong, developed a love for it, a passion for it. It's changed my life. It's mm-hmm. introduced me to some of my favorite people and opened the world to me. Mm-hmm. But running wasn't what it started from. It was a sense of community, and that's what I was passionate about, was community yeah. through the art gallery, through the cafe. Running was the vehicle for something else. I love that. Um, so that's why I don't take this too seriously. I'm not the fastest by any means. Like, I'm a big dude. I'm built for comfort, not for speed. You're not going to hear me talking about my 400-meter time or anything yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah. But there is something along that of, like, if you can tap into, like, the underneath layer, not just, like, the this is what I have to do to get this. It's, like, what do you, what's going to fuel what you have to do? Mm-hmm. That's where I think you start. I what you said like everything you said today has been super impactful for me that one it, it kind of almost goes back to what what chris rand had said about how, how you run the business the passion is not running the passion is community and and running is just a way that you are able to like to like invest in the community side of it i i love that man i think that's great and like what what is the thing that really drives you that you're really passionate about you really care about and then like what's the vehicle of that outside of that i I love that um all right second question so much of this focus uh of the club and just around the name really is about this one neighborhood but if you were to pick another neighborhood in toronto that you really feel like a deep connection to that you would like maybe maybe have another run crew involved in is there another one nope um it wouldn't be (laughs) no no it would be something literally either underground or along train lines or something it would be experience based of like we're going to get you to see a part of the city that you hadn't seen before and that's kind of what i love doing with some of the where my mind goes about experiences and and races and things in the future is like I've planted the seed of like how I want formats of races to go mm-hmm. um, where it's like not based on speed or what your watch tells you it's based on energy and feel I want to take those into places where we used to we used to find excitement in being mm-hmm. um, and and have that as a shared thing so there's a lot of places in the city a lot of abandoned buildings a lot of train lines a lot of you know reservoirs, things like that, that that's what I would do is like show people a different side of the city that you're in, but it's not, I couldn't be like, yeah, we're going to go to Liberty village because no. Yeah. As soon as I, I said that your eyes got big and you <laughs> became way more angry. Like this is it. All right. Uh, last question. Um, we've talked very little about music. It's just, it's just touched a little bit on the edges, but I have a, a sense that music's probably like a pretty big part of, of, your, uh, of your story. If you were to pick three <laughs> artists of any genre that would be a mainstay in the soundtrack of your life, who would they be? Uh, I really wish this is, would have been a question, I, one that you would have sent ahead of time because I'd be like <laughs> off the top of my head, this is the one question I'm gonna go home being like, I said the wrong thing. Um, Tribe Called Quest, hands down, 100%. Um, Jimi Hendrix would be another one. Um, And that's just because that was the first artist who kind of opened my mind to what music is outside of what I was listening to at the time. Mm 
um, uh, uh, third could be kind of anything. I'm, I'm going to go, this is weird. I'm going to go with De La Soul just because whenever things get really hard for me, my mind always goes to the lyrics of Break of Dawn and not that it's what's in those lyrics. It's just, it distracts me. And it's like the one thing that I can put on repeat and repeat. And it's like doing expenses with football game in the background. You don't care about the football game, but you need the noise. That song is just the, the melody. It soothes me and I can, yeah. So it's De La. Hell yeah. All right, man. So as we're closing off, any last words, anything you want to share? Thank you for having me. I'm, uh, I don't, I don't like to talk about myself, and I, uh, but I do like to talk about Parkdale. So thank you for giving me the opportunity to to shed some light on on the work we've done, and um, yeah, this this is. I hope the crew enjoys this, and I've done it justice, and I haven't pissed anybody off because um, yeah, I love you guys. So, oh yeah, awesome. Yeah. All right, everyone, we will see you in the outro. And Mike, drop the beat. Damn, that was an awesome conversation. Mike, thank you so much for joining us and for sharing the story of the run crew and also just about your life. It was great. You know, I think everyone hears me talk about this a lot for anyone who's listened to a, to a few episodes. That idea of just do the thing, start the thing, take the leap, take the risk. And it doesn't even have to be a risk. It can even be something as simple as, hey, let's just get a bunch of friends together and try something. For example, let's just go running. You don't know where it's going to lead or what possibilities it opens up. The idea of just doing the thing, getting off the sidelines, following that thread that interests you, doing something that you're passionate about. Everything doesn't have to be like, quote unquote, a success. Everything doesn't have to be this thing you put up in your mantle and be like, I did that. It can simply be like, hey, you know what? I went out and tried something and it was great or it wasn't great and I'm done with it. Or it could turn into something that changes your life the life of your friends and actually has a huge impact in a community or in a city. You know, I think Mike's story is one that is inspirational to me on like a personal level, uh, just being someone who like loves running and loves exercise and has a business, but also on more on a level of like, I would love to get in a place from a societal perspective where people just felt like following my passion is something I should do. Not something that I, not something that I can only do at a certain time in my life, but something I should do. I actually owe it to myself and other people to follow that passion. So again, Mike, thank you so much for all you do, all the Run Crew does, and for just being such a great person to speak with. So with that, I'm going to close off. My name is Aram Arslanian, and this is One Step Beyond. One step.